Uh, welcome back to Med Wretched, friends. Welcome back to Med Wretched, friends. How are you? <laughs> Always with the echo. I don't know what else to do. That's okay. I think it adds emphasis. Yeah. Hi, people. Hope you're doing well out there. Yeah, we hope you're doing well. It's still allergy season, in case you can't tell by my voice. Yes. Our dear <laughs> Mick is suffering with some very serious allergies right now. It's awful. So please just send her um, clear sinus vibes. Please. She needs them. She's hurting. She's suffering. I just dug a bunch of weeds out this weekend, so I'm really hoping that that helps. Yeah, right? I hope so, too. And you've kicked it all up. I know. That's probably Mm. the problem. I should have worn a face mask. I didn't know why I didn't. that's smart. You should have. Yeah. I'm going to paint this week, and I know I'll be wearing some face masks for that. I have two pumpkins, though. So everyone's good. You do? I have two pumpkins. Aw. Oh, babies. That's good news. I know. I'm very excited. I don't have pumpkins yet, but my pumpkin plants are looking really good. Okay. okay. So that's the hope. I do have some baby tomatoes. Yay. In my mystery tomato plant. I don't know what kind of tomato it is. Ooh. I, I sent my husband out for a certain number of grape tomatoes, a certain number of romas, and a certain number of beefsteaks or early yeah. girls or whatever. And then I said, and then just like pick up a random tomato. And he picked <laughs> one up that was not only random, but didn't come with a... A stick. Oh, so it's truly it's random. It's truly random. I have no idea what this tomato is going to be. Oh, God. I hope it's one of the purple tomatoes. I love those. They're so juicy. That would be fun. Yeah, that would be really fun. It's massive. It's the biggest one. So I'm like, this is going to be interesting. So we just got back from a very Midwestern weekend of traveling to a tiny Michigan lake, little inland lake where there was pedal boating and um, I felt like a different person after that pedal boat. Like I got in a burnt out fried teacher hanging on to like three shreds of my sanity. And I got off that pedal boat feeling like I had gotten off of like a meditation retreat. Aw, nice. Yeah. You're vibrating at a very high frequency right now and it's very, very good. So uh, we did that and then we went to Lansing Nice. To check out um, a diner that my husband wanted to go to and to go to Michigan State, scope it out just because we like universities and my grandparents met there. So it's got a special place in my heart. I bought one of their pride mugs. Isn't that cute? Aw. Yeah. And I got this t-shirt that says Michigan State University in Arabic. Oh. So I'm just like, I'm really happy right now. Um, <laughs> And then we went to Bath, Michigan, which allowed me to do some like stealth on the ground research for the Bath school disaster, which is a story I'll be telling in a few weeks. That's exciting. I got to do some stealth on the ground research for today's case. (gasps) Good. Good segue. Let's do this. My stealth on the ground research was probably much more delicious than yours. Oh, yeah, that's right. You did do that. Because it included buffalo mac and che- buffalo chicken mac and cheese, and it was delicious. And let me tell you guys, so today we're going to be talking about the Browns Chicken Massacre. Mm-hmm. And before I get into it, if any of you are like, I've never heard of Browns Chicken before, or you're just like, what the fuck is that's the weird name for a case? Mm. It's because it's named after a massacre at Browns Chicken and Pasta. Which I did not ever hear of before. Our case happened in 1993, mm. and kind of after the massacre, they everybody was afraid of it. Oh. Like, at the time, they were a very, very popular restaurant. 
across several, several states. But because of this, they've closed all, but I want to say it's 15 or so restaurants in Illinois. Mm. But if you happen to be in Illinois and near a Brown's Chicken, the buffalo mac and cheese is very tasty. Hmm. Okay, so take us further. Take us take deeper. Us Tell further. us about Brown's now Chicken. Now you know about the deliciousness. I'm also going to start off by saying a shout out to the Chicago Tribune for their amazing coverage oh, on this one. So this is one of those cases that took a very long time to get solved. And hmm. the Chicago Tribune never let it go. They really kept up their coverage from the day that it happened until all of the appeals and everything well after it was solved. So... Wow, that's great. Yeah. Good job, so, you guys. So shout out Chicago Tribune. You have other issues, but mm-hmm. for this one, you did good. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. All right. So I'm going to take you into the late hours of January 8th, 1993. Mm. Police officer Ronald Conley was on patrol duty on his regular route in Palatine, Illinois. A Palatine is a pretty nondescript middle to upper middle class suburb in illinois Mm -hmm. really very unremarkable middle income family area does not stand out from any other midwestern suburb is it one of those towns that you drive through when you're on the illinois toll road headed to wisconsin no it's a little bit west of that i've been there a couple times it's out by schaumburg which is like the mecca oh okay yep it's next to the ikea that's where i know why i know where it is right by the schaumburg ikea which is a that's a good ikea it's a good ikea i'm with you now bolingbrook one is better but the schaumburg ikea pretty solid Mm, true all right yeah our main guy here officer conley was driving through his patrol in palatine a pretty unremarkable night shift He drives past a complex of businesses, all of which had been closed for the night, restaurants, small shops, and the like. He notices a car parked in the parking lot of the Brown's Chicken Fast Food restaurant. So obviously he knows the restaurant's closed. It had been closed for hours at this point. It closed at 9 p.m., like most of the Mm -hmm. other things in the lot. So Conley pulls into the parking lot of the Brown's Chicken. And pulls up to the young man and asks him what he's doing. The man responds that he's looking for his older brother, who worked at the Browns, but hadn't come home from his shift that night. He talks to the man, gets a little bit of information. Both were adults. And the officer just kind of said, all right, well, good luck. Obviously, only a couple of hours had passed since he hadn't come home or his shift had been over. So the officer says, all right, good luck. Obviously, let us know if you need anything. It's nothing really for the officer to do at this point. Mm. So he drives off. Within a few hours after that, so we're getting kind of into the early morning hours, 2, 3 a.m. Mm. Connolly is finishing up his shift, and he responds to a radio call about a missing juvenile who had not returned from his shift at Brown's Chicken. Oh, Conley's ears perk up, thinking, okay, that's weird. That's a second I've heard of Brown's tonight. Mm. Conley goes to the family's house, collects some information, and drives off to the restaurant that he had just been a few hours earlier. Conley arrives at the Brown's Chicken at 2.30 a.m. He checks around the back door of the restaurant, where he finds the back door open, unlocked, and lets himself in. That's not good. Yeah. Just inside the doorway, the first thing that Officer Conley sees is a blood-soaked mop. And he immediately calls for backup. 
Wow. Conley retreats, stays out of the restaurant until backup comes. Good move, Conley. Mm, very, very smart. smart. Yeah. Three more officers arrive at the scene with their guns all drawn. The team of four slowly enter the restaurant, walking through the lobby and into the back. Mm. Officer Conley scopes the area, glances into the back where the walk-in freezers are, where he sees a hand and a foot protruding from the door of the walk-in. <gasps> Oh, gosh. How ugly. Okay. As the officers cautiously open the door, they see five bodies stacked and discarded. Five? Five bodies. Wow. All bodies showed evidence of gunshot wounds and all dead upon immediate investigation. Oh, man. I mean, I know it was a massacre, but... They don't stop there. Oh, my gosh. Really? There's a second walk-in. Oh, my gosh. So the team slowly but cautiously opens the door to the second walk-in to see two more bodies, again, all with fatal gunshot wounds. Wow. The crime scene in the walk-ins is so bloody that when the evidence collection team comes to investigate the scene and remove the bodies, those bags that they wear over their shoes... Mm-hmm. All just tore and leaked and filled with blood. Oh my god. Yeah. Oof. I'm sure you're gonna get to who our victims are, <laughs> yes, right? We are. Seven just seems like a lot of people to be on duty at a restaurant at one time, like a fast food place. Although I guess if it's busy. If it's a busy I don't know. That just seems like a lot of people. Just wow. You it know? was a busy, I believe it was a Friday night. Okay. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So, obviously, the crime scene investigators are working through the night. The sun is coming up, and the media had gotten word of the incident. There was no way to hide this once the crime Mm-mm. scene and the lab techs got there. Yeah, everyone's going to notice at a strip mall in Palatine if something is going yep. on. Yeah, you're not, you're hiding, not that. hiding that. And in addition, family and friends were sitting in fear and confusion that their loved ones didn't come home from work that night. Yeah. There's also people coming in to start their shifts for the next day. Oh, gosh, that just, like, didn't know. So there's people coming up to start their shifts. There's families coming up looking for their kids, their brother, their partners. There's coworkers coming in. As each worker arrived at the scene... They see each and every person coming up for the next shift, and they're just each one met with hugs and fear and confusion. They had no Mm. idea what had happened the night before. Yikes. They didn't know who was killed, who was there, what had happened. And a lot of people, so this was a January in Illinois, and, you know, people were just walking and riding their bikes and running up to this restaurant to figure out what was going on. Yeah, I can imagine. Each person that each worker, each friend that showed up was just like overjoyed to see the next and like, okay, it wasn't you. You're fine. Who was there? Who was working last night? Yeah. The Tribune interviewed a number of people that were there. We're talking about a a fast food restaurant in the 90s. A lot of people who were scheduled to work the next day were teenagers. Right. Yeah. So I want to read a couple of their comments that they had made Mm -hmm. just upon arriving at the scene. So this is coverage from the day of the discovery. Mm. 
Okay. 17-year-old Casey Sanders, who was an employee, heard the news on the radio and biked over in the middle of January. She told the Tribune, everybody, her co-workers that were there, everybody was really happy to see me, but it was a really strange feeling. They thought I was dead. I thought they were dead. Mm. Another 17-year-old, Jason Georgie, he shared that he was supposed to be working that night. He had actually requested the night off and requested a schedule change at the last minute because he wanted to go to the high school basketball game. Oh, wow. So he said, I feel really terrible for whoever took my place. If this was any other Friday night, that would be me there. Gosh, could you imagine how weird that feeling must Mm -hmm. be? That I can't even imagine. It's weird because your relationship with your colleagues is... It's not friendship, Mm -hmm. necessarily. It's not like, you're not close, close, you know, but you're, you know each other in this like particular context, you know? So thinking about people that you work with in any other context is kind of weird anyway. But then when you think about like, how do you deal with that, that loss? You know, it was almost Mm -hmm. me, but I'm also like, I lost somebody, but I'm also glad it wasn't me, you know, just that must be a really confusing set of feelings, especially for these young people. And I think about also being 17, and, like, when I was 17, mm-hmm. my some of my absolute best friends were my coworkers. Yeah. It's a weird feeling. I don't know how you process that. <sighs> yeah. Weird. So after the bodies were removed and some time and support was given to the workers that were present um, that morning, who, again, still didn't know which friends they had lost. The bodies had mm-hmm. not yet been identified. They didn't know who was lost, who, if anyone, was spared. Police asked all of the workers present and then obviously went out and asked all of the other kind of employees and former employees if they had any information they could share. Several workers shared that it was pretty well known that the owners kept the back door unlocked all throughout the day. Mm. The back door was the door that the employees used between shift change, breaks, bringing in supplies... And it's only within about eight feet of that unlocked back door that the restaurant safe that kept the day's cash was in. So eight feet from an unlocked door. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the employees had expressed their concerns about this to the owners, Richard and Lynn Mm -hmm. Ellenfeld, that this could be dangerous. Richard and Lynn were pretty new owners. They were new to the restaurant business. They had actually only Mm -hmm. purchased the store three months prior. Oh, yeah. wow. They assured the workers, they're like, we've got our eye on it. We're working on it. They had just finished a ton of updates and renovations, and they were finishing working through the remodel. Mm. So police continue their interviews and their investigation. They don't want to speak too soon. They don't want to give out too much information soon. Because at that mm. moment, when everybody's looking for answers, when everybody's looking for more information, they have nothing to go on. They have no motive. Mm. They have no suspects. They have nothing. They haven't even identified these people yet. Yeah. So they were able to collect some trace evidence at the scene. They were able to find tons of hair and fiber evidence, which can Mm. be tricky because it's a restaurant. Yeah. They also got fingerprints. Okay. Also tricky because restaurant, but better. The good side was that it seems like all of this happened at the closing shift. And so most Mm. things were pretty well wiped down. Okay, that's good. Luckily, in an otherwise completely emptied trash can, they Mm. found chicken bones from a four-piece chicken meal with saliva left on them. 
Do not tell me that this person killed all these people and then had a four-piece chicken meal. No, they had it before. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I already hate them, but okay. They even paid for the four-piece chicken meal. Oh. Because the cash register, the last thing rung up on the cash register was this four-piece chicken meal. Hmm. So the logical conclusion that whoever the perp there was was the last customer. They ate, waited for everybody else to clear out, and then made their attack. Mm, Interesting. But they left their saliva on a four-piece chicken meal. Good. Remember, it's 1993. Yeah, so DNA is rudimentary, but But having it is a good thing. It's late enough in the game that we know that having it is a good thing. Exactly. Meanwhile, the medical examiner is working to identify the bodies, Mm -hmm. and they were able to identify the following victims. Owners, Richard and Lynn Ellenfeld, ages 50 and 49. Tom Menes, age 32. Mark Nelson, age 31. Guadalupe Maldonado, age 46. Rico Solis, age 17. And Michael Castro, age 16. Oh, that's a lot of young people. (sighs) Yeah. This was the closing crew for the Friday night. Mm, gotcha. Not one of them had made it out alive. Yeah. So the people that called in for the juvenile that didn't go home was one of the last Was two. either Rico or Michael's parents. Mm. Yeah. All of them had received fatal gunshot wounds. And mm. Lynn, in an extra show of brutality, had her throat slit. Oh. Why? Hold on to that question. Will there, will there be a why there later? Be a okay. Why. It, it's not a satisfying why, but there's a why. Mm. Like I said, the Ellenfelds had only owned the restaurant for about three months, and it was a change of career for them. Richard had lost his previous job, and they decided to take a risk by this new restaurant. And apparently they were incredibly dedicated owners. They Aww. worked 16-hour days to make the business run. They were very much loved by their employees, which, yeah. as a former food service worker, let me tell you, makes mm. all the difference. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm sure it's probably pretty rare, too. Incredibly rare. I don't think I ever worked for a food service boss that was good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're hard to come by. They they really offered a lot of actual emotional support and kindness to and that they showed their employees. Mm. Guadalupe was a married father of three. He was mm. a native to Mexico but lived most of his adult life in Illinois. He had actually just returned from an extended trip to Mexico where he was taking care of family and had only taken. So he had a stable job in Illinois that he left to go back to Mexico. And when Mm. he came back, he was only working at Brown's temporarily waiting for his old job to open back up again. Tom Menes was a twin and his brother's name was Jerry. Tom and Jerry. Yes, they were. Yes, they were named after Tom and Jerry. Because apparently the two were just absolutely incredibly close. He was living with Jerry at the time. It was actually Jerry who was at the restaurant looking for his brother. He was was a beloved brother, a great and caring uncle to Jerry's son. That's really sweet. Marcus Nelson was getting ready to get married to a wonderful woman who Mm. remained an incredibly vocal advocate for this entire case. Good. She... Made sure that it stayed in the news, despite what it seems like she really suffered from a lot of secondary trauma 
from this. Yeah. So, and Rico and Michael are both students at the local high school. Both were working part time to earn some extra money for themselves and for college. And just Aww. good guys. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. it. We'll have to create some space in our weeks to think about all those yeah. people. Good people, all of them. Yeah. So police made promises. We're going to find who did this. We're going to do whatever we need to do. Blah, 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 blah. Mm. And within hours of the massacre, they made an arrest. Really? The man that they arrested was a former employee who had recently been fired. And just days before, had broken up with one of the victim's sisters. Interesting. Okay. So as soon as the massacre became news rumors around palatine because suburban people go to suburb rumors mm-hmm. began to swirl about this man everybody's like he's the one that did it he's the one that did it he's been acting weird he's been acting erratical he was firing a gun in his house the other day mm. so he was arrested basically immediately based on these rumors interesting um but of course rumors without any evidence to connect him to the crime led to him being arrested yeah. just two days later Oh. Now, he would go on to be completely cleared of the crime. Nothing to do with anything. He was just mm-hmm. at a struggle point in his life. Yeah. And I will not share this man's name because okay. there were follow-up interviews with him that you can, if you if you mm. want to dig into it, you can. But he was treated ruthlessly by the media. Even after he was cleared, even after he was released, for years after the events, people would pass suspicion on him, spread rumors, insist that he got away with murder. Hmm. Like, he got denied jobs. People would literally run away from him on the street. Whoa. Like, he had to move to a whole other part of the country just to get a fresh start. I was going to say, like, you got to leave unfortunately jeez which sucks because again he had nothing to do with anything and Mm -hmm. cleared of all wrongdoing cleared of all wrongdoing and i think that that's another reason just a reason why i don't like to share kind of people that have been cleared's names they don't need to revisit this point in their life yeah it just kind of like reignites the suspicion Mm -hmm. yeah but with this lead gone unfortunately police were back to interviewing the community and getting Mm -hmm. nowhere Local schools offered crisis counseling and other support services to the schools. And then the police did this really dumb thing. Oh, good. Where they told the families of victims, you need to be careful because whoever did this is still out there and they could come after you. Oh, why? I don't know what possessed them to say that. Why, 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 why? I don't. Because all it did was lead to, like, fear and ptsd and nightmares and paranoia yeah jerry nelson said his son refused to sleep in his bed and had nightmares for months after this um joy mclean who was um, mark nelson's fiance was eventually diagnosed with ptsd and students at the local high school who like i said high schoolers are working part-time jobs are working at fast food restaurants all of this they were panicking parents stopped letting them work and those comments just led to this big community-wide fear yeah yeah there was a collection taken up within the community tips and information that would grow to be over a hundred thousand dollars yeah to anybody that could provide information that would lead to an arrest but for years nobody came forward 
by the end of 1993, they were no closer to an arrest. They had no more information to go on. All they had was what they collected from the trash that night. Mm. So like I said, years are going to pass. There was so much attention on the case. And I guess when I say that nobody came forward, that they didn't have any leads, I guess that's misleading. Mm. Because... There was so much pressure on the police to solve this case that they really hammered it home. Yeah. Several times. An oddly high number of times. People would confess to this crime. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does happen. I mean, false confessions happen way more often than you think. Oh, yeah. Especially to like a high profile crime. Mm Mm-hmm. One man was even able to provide details of the crime that seemingly only someone at the murder scene would know. Oh, interesting. He told detectives that he'd fired a shot into a pan above the fryers. Yeah, yeah. But this guy kept changing his story and was eventually released. Mm. My thought is, if you tell enough stories, eventually one of them's going to have a detail from the crime scene. Yeah, yeah, especially, like, if you know, if they, if it was released to the media that it was a shoot, like, a mass Mm -hmm. shooting, it's not that hard to extrapolate that a stray, a few stray bullets are going to hit some stuff. Yeah, and if you know how fast food restaurants are set up. Yeah, exactly. You can picture it in your head, like, oh, yeah, of course, fired the left, like, yeah. So, I have a really Mm nitty-gritty question that there may not be an answer to, but I'm curious so they were able to trace that the last meal rung up on the register was the four-piece chicken meal that was in the trash can. Mm-hmm. Do we know if that was rung up for, like, the regular amount or, like, the employee discount amount or, like, in some way discounted? The reports I read didn't indicate that it was any employee discount, so I'm assuming it was a regular price. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I see where you're going. Yeah. Because I was like, yeah, I was just like, well, if we know that there was a discount given, we know at least it was somebody that they knew. A friend or. Like, or... Someone from the day shift mm-hmm. or like, oh, hey, I'll, you know, let oh, me, yeah. you know, I used to give my friends my 10% target discount. Oh, you know? yeah. But no, no leads in that one. It looks like it was paid for in cash. So there wasn't any like credit card. Yeah. Okay. So I've also been, like I said, been listening to the Forgotten West Memphis 3. So I'm on a big mm-hmm. like false confessions kick. One of the men that had reportedly falsely can or that had falsely confessed when he eventually kind of spoke more publicly of it, he shared that basically he was arrested, I think, on something unrelated, and that mm-hmm. police started feeding him information about the Browns massacre. Yeah, or he would give them information, and P- and the police would say that's not what happened. You know, that's not what happened, mm. and he would just keep talking and talking. Mm. That's messed up. So in two incidences, at least, the Palatine police got in real trouble for coercing these false confessions. Mm. This is a big enough case that they really should be calling in for some help from an outside agency, like the state police. Well, eventually somebody else made them. Mm. Okay. So eventually the public lost confidence after they heard news of all of these false confessions. Yeah. The Illinois State Crime Commission appointed a team of lawyers to investigate the investigation. Oh, very good. Okay, I like that. Uh, Unfortunately, that team came up and said they're doing just fine. In fact, they ended up defending the investigation. Did they? Yeah, well, we know how corrupt Illinois is. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Also, how incredibly long every trial takes in this stupid state. 
Yeah, seriously. You guys drag it out. I know. I know. What is it? Some like the Iowa and Nebraska cases, they get that done in like six months. I know, right? Oh. It's like bingo, bingo. We're over done. here in Illinois waiting five years for like a simple charge. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so the Illinois State Commission said, no, they're doing just fine. Whatever. So they're like, Palatine doesn't need to collect, doesn't need to bring in anybody higher up. And that's dumb. dumb. So years kept passing. No progress on this case. It wasn't until 2002 a young woman finally comes forward and says, I know what happened. That's nine years. Nine years. Yep. Wow. This woman's name was Anne Lockett. She had grown up in the area. She moved to Palatine in junior high. She attended Fremd High School at the time of the shooting and was kind of your typical high school teenager, well-liked, had a lot of friends, seemed to fit in pretty well. Hmm. But she was... Like many teenagers, like many people, under the surface struggling with depression, some substance abuse, Mm, and had several suicide attempts. Oh, poor kid. On the night of the Browns killings, actually Lockett was in the hospital for mental health treatment. Hmm. In 2002, she came forward and shared that the night of the murders, while she was in the hospital, she got a call from an ex-boyfriend, James Degorski. Mm. Who said, you need to watch the news tonight. Okay. Obviously, what's on the news the entire night of the massacre? Yeah. All coverage of the killings. Right. Now, obviously, she had limited access to the news in the hospital. So she called her mom from the hospital and asked her to save newspaper clippings because she wanted to know what was happening with with the murders. Hmm. After she was discharged from the hospital, she said that she threw all of these away because she got scared. Like, they just freaked her out seeing them, and so she threw them away. But I want to talk a little bit about her relationship with Degorski and kind of why he called her what was going on there. James Degorski was a few years older than her, so he was 19 at the time of the killings. Mm. The two had gone to Fremd High School together and began dating in 1992. Lockett's friends would say that... Degorski was very controlling that not long after the two started dating he would pull her away from friends not allow her to hang out get mad if she was with anyone but him gross he eventually became physically abusive toward her Lockett would document much of this in her diaries at the time Mm. and this is like was he also a teenager he was 19 she was I believe 17 yeah okay I'm gonna need you to uh, spend some time looking at the Mitchell Sims he committed a series of murders at Domino's Pizzas in the 80s. Really? It's bonkers. But it very, very, very much reminds me of this. I originally walked into a Domino's in, I believe it was South Carolina, mm-hmm. and he shot the two men there in the head. Uh, one was dead immediately. The other guy had gotten shot in the temple, the mouth, and the throat. Oh, my God. But survived long enough to walk to the police station and tell the police what happened. It's insane. How much of your brain is left after all of that? Yeah, he did end up dying in a coma a couple weeks later. But he made it to be able to walk there and to tell that something went down. And to give a name. He was able to choke out a name before he fell into the coma. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's amazing. 
Yeah, I'm going to need you to watch anything about that case. Mitchell Sims is the killer. It's insane. All right, I got it. Oof. Do it. Ah, Do it. Jeez, okay, you just fucked me right up. Yeah. It's, it's a, it, it will fuck you uh. up. And then what they go on to do, oof, just so bizarre. Okay. Uh. I have no segue back. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, sorry. Uh, okay, so James Degorski, mm-hmm. trash boyfriend extraordinaire. Yeah, he sounds awful. And said that she was very young and very much under his control. She admitted she was really scared of him. So when she gets out of the hospital and meets up with Degorski, he shares with her it was him. He's like, I did that. He said he wasn't alone. Degorski tells Anne that it was him and his close friend, Juan Luna, hmm. who was a former employee of the Browns Chicken. Interesting. Okay. The two had planned to commit the attacks because, quote, they wanted to do something big. That's so gross. Degorski tells her that if you tell anyone, I'll kill you. Wow. And for Anne, this was a very real threat. Yeah, he'd heard her before, so why would she not believe yeah. that? Yeah, totally. I think it was her, and I could be misplacing my witnesses, but had said, well, if he killed seven people, then what's eight? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if that's the logic, 100%. Yeah. He actually went so far as he forced Anne to go to the police with Luna when Juan Luna was interviewed. Hmm. Because Degorski said, it'll look better for you if you're with a woman and if you're nicely dressed when you go talk to the police. Interesting. So put on a nice jacket and have a nice girl with you and you need to go with him. What a manipulative, nasty person. Yeah. That cold, cold logic, too, is just like, here, girlfriend, I'm going to let you be, like, traumatized by this further. Yeah. They'd been broken up at this point. Good gracious. What a monster. And so because of all of that manipulation, she kept this secret for nine years. Yeah. Well, I can't really blame her. Well, a lot of people did later on. I'm sure they did, yeah. They got very upset, but... Anne would eventually, she moved out of Illinois. Her family moved to Oregon shortly after the killings. But she moved back to attend college. And all the while, this kind of would come and be used against her credibility later on. She was struggling with substance abuse. She was struggling with depression, like I said. Mm -hmm. It seems like from people who had no connection to this case, her professors, her, her friends, It seemed like she had really tried to kind of pull herself up. She attended college. She was working full time. She managed to land a research assistantship. Good for her. Yeah. And her professors and bosses described her as smart, kind, and responsible. But again, people were very, very upset in 2002 when she finally came forward. Yeah. The buildup to her coming forward kind of played out like this. So basically... What she shares is she kind of always lived in, like, a state of fear and anxiety. She was always kind of trying to move on. It sounds like she had some mental health struggles before the relationship with Degorski, And then everything kind of got worse when you're in a toxic relationship like that. Yeah. And the whole time, like, he's still out there, so the threat still looms. Like, it's not like... 
And some people would say, like, that's probably why she was moving around so much. That's probably Mm -hmm. why she was so transient. Or at least contributed to it. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine it's easy on your psyche to carry a secret like that. Yeah, no way. So one day she, this is again when she's later on in college, closer to around 2001. She confides in her boyfriend at the time. She says, this guy I used to date and his friend, they told me that they were responsible in talking Mm -hmm. about the killings. Her boyfriend believed her. Yeah. And he began to really, really fear for her safety. He didn't know what to do. They're 20, about 26 at the time, 25, 26. Yeah, I was going to say, they're still pretty young. They told a roommate who reportedly helped them get a FOID card, which Mm -hmm. is a gun owner identification card in Illinois. Oh, okay. So basically, he's like, you need to get a gun. Yeah. Now, during all of this time, I will say, there's no report that Degorski had any contact with her. Mm. But Anne continued to be encouraged to do something by the roommate and the friend. The boyfriend says, why don't you write an anonymous letter? She's too scared. She's like, I don't want to do anything in writing. Like, even that's too scary if it's anonymous. It's a good idea, though. It is. So another friend apparently overhears this conversation. Mm. I think that this friend kind of took the low and slow approach to encouragement. Yeah. Like a good barbecue. (laughs) Yes. Barbecue the truth. Yes. (laughs) But kind of just like helps build her confidence up and Mm -hmm. helps talk to her and process. And first, let's talk to like your close friends and then let's tell your family, okay, now are you ready? Let's go to the police. Yeah, that's smart, honestly. Yeah. So good job, friend. Yeah, I think that's really smart. And she finally reports. She says, I feel safe. Let's go. Let's do this. Mm. But interestingly, she wasn't the only one that did. Luna and Degorski apparently, the night of the murders, confessed to their actions to somebody else. Oh, come on. And this is her story. Okay. So around 2000 to 2001, so this is a little bit before Anne, Eileen Bacala comes forward and says, I know what happened. Hmm. Eileen was a close friend of Degorski and Luna in high school. Um, At that time in their friend group, um, she shared that they were kind of just, you know, typical dumb high school, late teen stuff. A lot mm-hmm. of smoking weed, a lot of hanging out at a local pizza shop, trolling the Fox River. Yeah. In 1993, Bacala was working at Jake's Restaurant, a kind of local haunt of the group. In fact, Degorski and Luna also had both worked there for brief stints before getting fired. Hmm. They have a track record of getting fired from restaurants. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Bacala grew up not far from Degorski and attended high school, like I said, with the two of them, hung out with them on a regular basis. On the night of the murders, she was apparently finishing up her shift at Jake's Pizza. Mm. Jake's Pizza was open much later. She was kind of finishing up, cleaning up, that sort of fun thing. Degorski and Lunar call her. They ask her to pick them up by the Jewel Osco. It's got to be a Jewel. (laughs) Got to be a Jewel if it's Illinois. Yep. Jewel is just a grocery store. I didn't know what it was until I moved here either. I didn't know what it was until you moved there. And then I was like, what is this place? It's a Jewel. It's not a Kroger. It's not. Anyway, it was late at this point, right around midnight. But this wasn't a crazy ask. Think about your high school days. Yeah, no. So she heads over there to pick them up. She says the two looked pretty worked up and pretty excited when she went to go pick them up. Hmm. 
They jump in the car. They drive over to Bacala's house in Elgin, which is right by Palatine. Mm-hmm. Luna and Degorski, when they get to her home, tell her that they robbed the Browns. Okay. Then they give her 50 bucks for the trouble of picking them up. They took the other right about $3,000 that they had Whoa. gotten from the robbery. So they yeah. were able to get into the safe. They were able to get into the safe. Mm-hmm. They get 3K. Bacala gets 50 bucks. And then they got high and crashed for the night. Mm-hmm gross a lot of our stories i feel like you do some they do something absolutely terrible and they just fall asleep you know i've been thinking a lot about that Uh having just i don't know had some intense experiences lately and i feel like it's got to be a pretty simple explanation that it boils down to adrenaline right like yeah it's an adrenaline rush and then a crash yeah you have that adrenaline crash like every time like i had to get a blood draw last week which is obviously not the same thing (laughs) It is for it is for your uh, fight or flight system. Yes, for your amygdala, it, it is the same thing. Yeah, and it is for me emotionally because I have a really really hard time with it. And I'm gonna just slip in really coyly to our listeners that hey, what up? I'm pregnant, so I'm getting a lot of blood drawn right now. Surprise, Barry! Surprise! Lady. I know, right? <laughs> if you got this far, you deserve to know. Um. <laughs> Welcome to the fam, baby Tom. Yay! Yay! Well, no, it's uh, sex next week, so I will probably share that with the broad community so can i call it babe wretched absolutely <laughs> yeah refer okay, back to my first trimester and you'll know that it's a babe wretched <laughs> you could probably hear it in those episodes i'm just like <laughs> yeah um but yeah like i um i had been doing pretty okay with my blood draws just because you know you have to do a lot of them but this last one was really really bad like really painful and they took way more and i was it was spontaneous. I wasn't planned for it. So I didn't have like my ice pack or my snacks that I usually bring. I really do. Um, and if you tell them that you're a fainter, even if you're not, they will treat you real, real good. Just pro tip. But I needed to sleep like the rest of the day. I was useless because I was so worked up, worked up, worked up. And then, you know, I got home and I was just like a pile. And it's I've, it really is just the adrenaline come up and then come down so like we've seen this with you know sean great was naked and asleep anthony sowell over and over and over again like i just like does it just boil down to simple adrenaline you have to crash out at some point you know i do think about it after i've had like i've never killed anybody never come close to it but after i had a really good cry yeah or like even a big fight with somebody you know which i've never really had but i could imagine like panic attacks i just have a panic maybe that's a bad example (laughs) <laughs> yeah, or even like, you know, a job interview or like something that gets you worked up. You know, anytime you're worked up, you're going to yeah. have a crash. I, I feel like yeah. thinking about it that way, I would be more alarmed if they didn't crash afterward because that would tell me that they didn't have enough of a reaction to what they were doing to have the adrenaline spike and then crash. I know physiologically it makes sense, but emotionally just, it doesn't. Yeah. How do you how do you do something so awful and then just Like how do you ever sleep again? Really? Yeah. Well, so they went to sleep for the night, and the next morning, Bacala drives the two back to their car mm. in Palatine. Remember, it's still at the Jewel. On the way, they pass the Browns' chicken, seeing the police and the crowds. While they're all three together, Degorski and Luna finally tell Bacala the full extent mm. of what they did. 
They said that not only did they rob the store, but they killed seven people in cold blood, some of whom were Luna's former co-workers. And she says the same thing. Why? What's the motivation? And they told her they wanted to do something big. It's just so cold. I can't tell you what was going through Bacala's Mm. mind at the time. She says that she was never afraid of the two. It wasn't a situation like Lockett's. She was just friends with them. But she takes the two. They get Luna's car. Go to take it to the car wash. They get the exterior and the interior Mm. cleaned. And Bacala would even go on to act as an alibi for Luna. Interesting. When he was interviewed by the police. But her relationship with him is just the tenuous friendship. That's so interesting. Why? And she would remain friends with them for the next few Hmm. years after this. When asked kind of later on, like, why? What? How do you just carry this? She says just nobody Mm. ever talked about it. It was just a taboo, an elephant Hmm. in the room. There's got to be something more to that. Even if it just boils down to simple fear, which I would understand, you know. You know, she denies ever being afraid of them, but I don't know. Now, Bacala would hold on to the secret until September of 98. Hmm. When she was about to get married and she confesses to her soon-to-be husband, basically, I have this deep, dark secret. I know who Hmm. committed the massacre. And... At the time, her husband, he was later interviewed. He didn't really know what to yeah. think about it. It's kind of like a, just a disbelief. He had met Degorski on mm. several occasions. He thought Degorski was a good guy. I don't know how he processed the information or even if he yeah. believed it. But he said he thought he needed to keep the secret to preserve their marriage. Interesting. Gosh, that's so strange. Their marriage ended in 2001. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm, I can't say I'm very surprised. And in 2001, he decides he needs to come forward. Okay, good. Good good job, buddy. Obviously, the police needed to go something more to go on than an ex-husband's word. Like, that's, yeah. that's just hearsay, right? So they get in contact with Bacala, who finally comes clean. And then finally, armed with the testimony of both Lockett and Bacala... They have enough information to at mm-hmm. least move forward. They're able to track down Luna to Carpentersville, Illinois, and arrest him in April 2002. Dang, nine years later. Degorski was living in Indianapolis at the time. Ah, why do you have to come here? Ah, everything bad happens in Indiana. It no, does not. not. We're talking about a it literal does. massacre in Illinois. That's true. All the bad people. No. I live Whatever. There. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, I got nothing. Um, I retract yeah. all of that. I'm cutting all of it. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Luckily, though, the Palatine police get in contact with the Indiana police, and they agree to a little cooperation. Mm. The Indianapolis police are able to locate him. They track him down to his place of work, and they meet him at the parking lot of his place of work. Mm. They tell him, just got a few questions about the shooting. Do you want to, you know, drive up to Chicago and <laughs> come with us? Let's keep it real chill, real chill. Keep it real chill. And they did. At the time that they picked him up, he says he was not informed that this was an arrest or even an official questioning. Hmm. But he did sign a consent to travel with the police back to Palatine. 
Interesting. I was just going to ask, where's, uh, well, he was one that was an Indy? About four hours, because I just made this trip. Yeah. Because I have to pass through Indianapolis to get to Dayton. That's yeah. a decent drive. So he signed the consent to travel on May 18th, 2002. Yeah. Go back more into that later, whether or not that was a legit thing for the police to do. Because mm. obviously that's going to come up in an appeal. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put Degorski on the shelf here. We're going to get back to him. Always with the shelves. Always with, I got so many shelves. I love shelves. I know you do. I spend so much money on them. Um, <laughs> That's true, you do. <laughs> I need bespoke shelves. Yes. I got a lot of weight. I got a lot of, got a lot of emotional weight to put on these shelves. <laughs> Understandable. We're going to jump back to Luna. So Luna was, remember, arrested just a month prior in April 2002. Mm. He quickly gave a long videotaped confession to the police. In his confession, he admitted that he and Degorski had planned the attack. Luna says that the plan was just to rob the store. That was all they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And that they chose the Browns chicken because Luna had previously worked there and because he knew the back entrance was unlocked. It was safe. It was close in proximity. It felt like it would be an easy target. Yeah. So the two entered the establishment close to the 9 p.m. closing time. He ordered food. There's only trash found from one person in the trash can. Mm. So it looks like only he was the one that ordered the food. Okay. And then they went to the bathroom where they donned latex gloves. It feels like a little late to put on latex gloves at this point, but hey. Yeah, a little bit. But I guess like in the early 90s, like law enforcement knows that DNA is a useful thing to have, but maybe these buttholes didn't. Yeah. After everyone but the workers had left... Degorski pulls out a 38 caliber gun. The two begin to shout and order the workers into the walk-ins. Mm. They single out Lynn Ellenfeld, who Luna grabs and takes her to the back office. He demands that she get the key for the safe. He takes her into the safe, or into the area where the safe is, and has her unlock it. And then, very quickly, as soon as it's unlocked, slits her throat. Oh, God. When asked why... He slit her throat. He says, you know, I just got carried away in the moment. Well, you told me it was not going to be a satisfying why. And it's not. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I didn't want to build you up for anything. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate (laughs) that. But, you know, he really does. You know, you think about like a two-person crime or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. I think there's that stereotype of the mastermind and kind of like the lackey, you know? Yeah. And he does kind of sound like the push behind it all, right? So if someone's going to make an extra brutal move. Mm-hmm. It seems fitting that it's him, you know, especially the idea of like, I want to do something big. The whole thing sounds so poorly thought out and it kills me that they got away with it for so long. Yeah. Because there was nothing subtle about this attack whatsoever. Yeah. So Degorski then orders Luna to drag Lynn back into the walk-in with the rest of the people. Degorski hands Luna the thirty-eight caliber gun and according to Luna, Degorski orders him to start killing everyone. Jesus. Luna says he only fired two shots and he shot randomly, hmm. not really targeting anyone. He says then Degorski grabbed the gun and killed all of the remaining workers. Hmm. Emptied the gun, reloaded it, and emptied it again. When he thought he was done, he kicked the bodies to make sure that they were dead. 
Ugh. And he jabbed at some of them with a broom. Ugh. The two then grabbed the money from the safe. They try to cover up with the mop any immediate tracks so that nobody would notice when they just driving by. Mm. They run out of the store to the nearby Jewel Osco and call Eileen Bacala. Wow. I'll be curious about how trial and sentencing go between the two of them. Because that confession sounds pretty open and shut, right? Mm-hmm. Luna's defense team would obviously try to get this confession thrown out. Yes. They would say that the confession was coerced, that mm-hmm. Luna was threatened. He was told that either he had to confess or his family would be deported. I'm not mm. sure where his family was from, but... But it's a scary threat to hear if it's true. That exactly. Yeah. And let's look at Palatine's track record now. Yeah. What his defense team could not avoid, however, was the physical evidence that they now had access to. Mm. We're now in 2002. We've got decent DNA evidence. We've got the fingerprints and the saliva on the chicken. Mm. That they had managed to preserve for nine years. Dang. (laughs) Good job, saliva chicken team. (laughs) They did one thing right. Now... So the defense team would argue that, oh, the chicken wasn't properly stored, so blah, 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 blah. Mm. It was fine. They got the DNA that they needed. Yeah. Whoever was in charge of the saliva chicken did a good job. We love you, saliva chicken team. Yes. (laughs) And, of course, once they had Luna, they had to compare it. They're good, Mm -hmm. golden. It was him. He was there. He did it. Mm -hmm. He done did it. Yeah. Now, I got to flip back to Degorski, right? Yes. Yeah. Because there's no other physical evidence, is there? No, there's not. There's really not. And it's just, he's the he's the yappy one other than this confession. But yeah. otherwise, based on the evidence that's there, it looks really bad for Luna mm-hmm. and not as bad for Degorski. Yeah. yeah. So he, like I said, taken into custody the next month in May. So he was taken from Indianapolis, transported to Palatine, but apparently mm. the media got wind surrounded the station and they ended up having to take him to nearby streamwood mm. so he had worked a full day they picked him up after work they arrived at streamwood pd at 8 p.m as soon as he gets out of the car he's mirandized and immediately questioned okay he stated that he understood everything understood the miranda warnings they begin questioning initially he's very evasive they take a break they come back he gets coffee blah 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 He's a bit more cooperative. They kind of do this pattern for a little while. Around 10.30 p.m., the detectives bring in the state's assistant attorney, Mike McHale. Mm. He is careful to introduce himself as a prosecutor, not as a defense attorney. Mm -hmm. The two speak for about an hour. He tells Degorski that he should cooperate, given the details that he knows. The two detectives that were interviewing him, their names are King and Briscoe, which totally sounds like a law and order. Yeah, they need a TV show. King, Briscoe, and McHale. Ooh, yeah, I love that. Oof. They question him for three hours, so we're getting into the wee hours of the morning here. Yeah. By the end, they say, we need a videotape statement from you. Mm. We want to get everything you just told us on record. Degorsi says, nah, I'm too tired. I want to sleep. Because it's 4 a.m. at this point. He had worked a full day. He's like, I'm not agreeing to a videotaped confession at 4 a.m. McHale says, okay, we got to let him sleep. If we question mm-hmm. him now, it's going to be seen it'll as... It'll get thrown out. It'll yeah. get thrown out. Mm-hmm. So they let him sleep in a cell that night while King and Mikhail sleep on a couch in the station. I like to think very cuddled up. Around 4 p.m. the next day. So they give him a solid 12 hours. Mm. King informs Mikhail that Degorski is ready to give a statement. Mikhail's ready to go. Degorski signs his consent. 
Mm. Starts the tape. It's 4.13 p.m. Degorski's like, I'm ready. I want to do my videotaped confession. Blah, 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 blah. Mikhail's like, sign this. Click this button. Record. Mm. And I'm so fucking pissed at how this went. (laughs) Oh, no. So this is the recording of Degorski's statement after he agreed to give a videotaped confession. Mm-hmm. I'm going to skip the part where Mikhail lists like the day and the time and who's present and all of that. Sure. He says, Jim, before we spoke, I explained that I am an assistant attorney, a lawyer, and a prosecutor, not your lawyer. Is that correct? Jim nods, indicating yes. Mikhail, you need to answer out loud. Degorski, yes. Mikhail, okay, and before we spoke, I advised you of your constitutional rights. Is that correct? Degorski, yes. Mikhail, Okay, I need you to do me a favor and keep your voice up a little. Okay, Jim, I talked to you earlier and you told me about the homicidal deaths of the seven individuals. And at the time you told me in summary that you and Juan Luna planned a robbery at the Brown's Chicken and Palatine. At that time during the robbery, you shot two people in the cooler and Juan shot the other five and stabbed the lady. Money was taken and split between the two of you. Is that correct? Dgorski mumbles something inaudibly. Oh, no. Mikhail. Okay. Again, I know it's I know it's hard, but if you could just keep your voice up for us, okay? Okay. What I just said to you then, is that correct? Degorski. Right. Mikhail. Okay. I'm going to read you your rights again. Do you understand that you have the right to remain silent? Degorski. Yes. Mikhail. Do you understand that you have... Understand that anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. Dugorski, yes. Mikhail, do you understand that you have the right to talk to a lawyer and have him present while you're being questioned? Dugorski, yeah. Mikhail, do you understand that if you cannot afford a lawyer and want one, a lawyer will be appointed by the court to represent you before any questioning? Mikhail, mumbles inaudibly. Mikhail, understanding these rights, Jim, do you wish to talk to us now? Dugorski, not really. <gasps> oh, that butthole. Mikhail. Okay, earlier you told us what happened, right? You spent a long time talking with Bill and myself, is that correct? Degorski. Correct. Mikhail. Okay, I gave you your rights before when I first met you, is that correct? Degorski. Yeah. Mikhail. Okay, and you told me you understood your rights. Degorski. Okay. All right, I'm going to skip a couple of points because he just goes through the Miranda Mm -hmm. again. Yeah. So we're going to jump in just a few lines later. Mikhail, okay, and you basically said that you were willing to give a videotaped statement about this case. Degorski, yes. Mikhail, okay, so... Degorski, and on number one, it gave me the option to not say anything if I didn't, which was a piece of paper that he signed, Mm -hmm. listing out his rights. Mikhail, Okay, what part of it? Degorski. I think one, that I don't have to say anything. Right to remain silent. Mikhail. Are you asking to remain silent? You don't want to give a videotape statement today at this time? It's your choice, Jim. Degorski. Yeah, I want to. What? Mikhail. I guess. Degorski. But it would just... It'll be easier if I just have to say it one time or say it in court. I've already said it. It's not like I have anything to hide or whatever. Oh, my God. 
He's just toying with them. He's toying. He is such a manipulator. Toxic, toxic person. Mikhail, okay, this is what you and I and Bill talked before, correct? Dagorski. Yeah. Mikhail, okay, it's your choice. I mean, as you sit there, you can tell me I don't want to talk about this or I do want to talk about this. Now, we've been through this before, so Dagorski cutting him off. I don't want to talk. I mean, I don't want to talk about it. Mikhail. So, all right, you realize that by doing this, you're stopping the tape and we're walking out. Is that what you want us to do? Degorski? Then I'll just say it in court. What? They go back through, just kind of double-checking that a few times. And the entire videotape that was supposed to be the confession lasts a little over four and a half minutes. Wow. I gotta see what this butthole looks like. (laughs) I need to know if, like, what I'm imagining. It is. Yep, pretty much exactly what I imagined. Mm Mm-hmm. Ugh, I hate him so much. So, obviously, they were pissed. Yeah, big time. I would probably be going home and punching them all. Mikhail probably did that, but okay, this part is going to get somebody in a lot of trouble Mm. so degorski's still under arrest he's transferred to cook county jail pro tip never end up in cook county jail yeah i was gonna say that can't be a fun place where it would later be alleged that jail guards severely physically attacked and beat him oh boy two guards specifically were named in the complaint although it was alleged that several other guards basically stood by and watched it happen Mm. He was kicked and beaten so bad, actually so severely, that he had to have metal plates in his face for reconstruction. Wow, really? Yeah. So obviously, Dukorski, not a good guy. Terrible person. Also, Cook County jail guards. Terrible. Yeah, no one deserves a jailhouse beating like that. From the jail guards. From the jail guards, yeah. And it nearly ruined the case. Yeah. That's the worst part. It, It nearly got everything thrown out. Yeah, I can imagine. So investigators continued their investigation against the two. Like I said, luckily, Illinois takes forever to investigate literally anything. True. They had the physical evidence against Luna, who had been cooperative in his initial interviews, um, but they had literally nothing against Degorski other than the witness statements. Mm. The two trials were separated primarily because Luna's statement put Degorski in the worst light. Mm-hmm. And the investigators believed that it was probably a much more equal relationship. Yeah. In August 2002, the state of Illinois made it clear that they were seeking the death penalty for both men. Because hmm. in 2002, we still had the death penalty. I don't think we do anymore. Yeah, I don't think you do either. That's interesting. It wasn't until 2007, literally five years, Illinois. Wow. That Luna finally goes to trial. Hmm. By this time, Luna had recanted his statement, said that it was coerced. And his team tried to get all the physical evidence thrown out. Mm. None of that mattered. The videotaped confession was played at trial, showing that Luna was in a calm, relaxed state, giving graphic Mm -hmm. details of the events of the night because he got a good videotaped statement. Yeah. The jury took less than an hour to convict Luna. Dang. Based primarily on the physical evidence because they had the DNA and the fingerprint evidence from Luna. And when kind of interviewed later, the jury said, like, yes, they had the witness testimony, but that didn't really matter all that much to them. 
Now, at the time when we did have the death penalty, the jury got to vote on the death penalty. Mm. And you had to have all 12 jurors agree to the death penalty. And Luna was spared the death penalty by one vote. Wow. So he is currently still serving life in prison. Mm. Degorski's trial was delayed because he had to recover from the attack in the jail. Right, yeah. His trial was held in 2009. Prosecutors knew that this was going to be a tougher case because they didn't have the same level of evidence against him. Yeah. And they really had to rely on the witness statements on this one. The defense tried to cut down the witnesses as best they could, poking holes in their stories, attempted to say that their statements were unreliable because of drug use and mental illness. Hmm. You know, same old tactics. Do I think that the witnesses at the time, Lockett and Bacala, were probably a little shady? And is it questionable that they held on to the secret for nine years? You can make that argument, and I'll, yeah. I'll hear it, but... Yeah, you can. I mean... I don't love it, though. I don't I don't love it either. Yeah. Especially for Lockett. Bacala, I feel like I have more questions about. Yeah. But Degorski was eventually convicted. He did not testify at his trial at all. Mm. He was convicted. He only took about two hours of jury deliberation. Wow. And similarly was spared the death penalty by, I believe, one vote as well. Dang. There's a couple of addendums to this story, though. Mm. So I'm going to tack these last few on. So obviously, Degorski especially is going to be the one to appeal in this case. Yeah. And I will say, I kind of feel a little bit about his conviction, the same way that a lot of people feel about Scott Peterson, mm-hmm. that he's probably guilty, but... But was the... Was, was the, the evidence really then? there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because the there was so much bias in this case. Yeah, there was. There was. And, I mean, what, you know, relying so heavily on witnesses... Is always questionable, It's a risk. Right? It's a risk. It's a big risk. Yeah. yeah. So, again, they took a lot of issue with Ann Lockett's statement. Mm-hmm. Questioner said, oh, we weren't dating at the time, and there's no way that I could have called her in the hospital. There's no way she mm-hmm. could have watched the news in the hospital. They accuse her of seeking the reward money, and that's the only reason why she came forward. Mm. She would eventually be granted a majority of that reward money, which she split with the friend that encouraged her to come forward. So Aww. take that what you will. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he also... He has, I would imagine, a pretty prime opportunity for a civil suit against that guard. So if he were to get that, all of it thrown out, he could actually stand to come out pretty considerably up. That's the next point. Is it really? Yeah. Am I that good? You are really that good. Yes. So I want to finish out this one, though. So he applied to have a new trial because he felt that he didn't have a fair trial. Hmm. Unfortunately, upon review, the judge said there's nothing to support the accusations. He was denied a new trial. Like I said, do I think he probably got the most fair trial? Do I think that there's enough evidence? Especially, there's no physical evidence against him. Mm-hmm. But we've seen that happen in a million cases, right? When there's yeah. no physical evidence. Especially, I don't know, when there's such community outrage and it's gone on for so long. Like, you just want to see it done. Exactly. And I I feel like that was a lot of what was happening at his trial. Mm -hmm. I mean, it had been 14, 15 years by the time he was stood trial. Yeah. So, so yeah, judge said, no, you're not getting a new trial. You can do the same thing everybody else does. 
Back to your point, though, he did have a civil suit hmm. against the Cook County where he was granted a total of $451,000 in Whoa. damages. Yes. Dang. So, Cook County Jail. Stop it. Huh. Yeah, get it together, please. Get it together. Yeah, And I mean, again, that was a terrible beating if it went so far that he had to have metal plates in his face. Yeah. That's yeah. disgusting. And it's it's not the first I've heard of things like that from Cook County. Yeah, I can't imagine that it is. That's just yeah. a lot of, yeah, there's just a lot of corruption up your way. I'm sorry. It it really, really is. Yeah. It's unlikely that Degorski will ever see a penny of that money. Mm-hmm. So there's a weird laws in Illinois. So Cook County is actually able to collect that money back. What? Yeah. Through like this weird Ouroboros of laws. Weird. That Cook County owes him the money, but then they can collect it back. Because he kind of belongs to Cook County? Is that kind of the... I think so. Wow. I don't... I To, like, pay for his care and, like, the lawyer's fees and mm. the families Jeez. of the victims were also eligible to make claims on that money. Yeah. However, from my research, it looks like at this point, no family members have laid claim to any of it. Mm, that's interesting. The Tribune has interviewed a couple of the family members and they're like, we don't want it. It feels weird. We support any family members that do want it, but yeah, ick. Yeah. It just feels kind of icky. Yeah, I could see why. I could see why. I do want to talk a little bit about Bacala and Lockett. So, like I said, a lot of people were really angry at the two of them for not coming forward earlier. Yeah. There was so much vitriol thrown in their direction for holding on to this. And I can understand the community's anger a thousand percent. Yeah, totally. But I can also understand, again, especially for Lockett, the fear that went along with it. Yeah. And whether Bacala says it or not, there had to be some, something holding her back. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, if one of my friends commits a mass murder... I love you guys, but not that much. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, she knew the same guys, and I kind of, my mind goes straight to just the fear aspect Mm -hmm. of it. Like, was there just this fear in her that it was going to come back to bite, and she just didn't want to admit to that because it was going to make her look weak or something? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Or was there some sort of something that she took as a threat that, you know... Well, and a lot of people would urge the police to press charges against them for aiding a crime, for Mm. concealment of a crime, for whatever. The Palatine police, though, they eventually kind of just said, like, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. They said there's nothing we can charge them with. But I also feel like there was a little calculation into that decision that they really needed to paint these girls in a positive light. Yeah. Yeah. Because they weren't going to get their case, you know, without the around them. Yeah. It's, It's a calculated decision. And I get it. It I mean, is. it may not feel good, mm-hmm. but... But it's, you know, you have to think about the... How does that scale, you know, yeah. measure out, you know? Yeah. But I also just kind of wonder about, like... Because she had had some issues and stuff in the past, right? Like, yeah. you know, a lot of people don't have an inherent reason to trust police. And it sounds like nobody has a reason to trust the Palatine police <laughs> back in those days. So... Yeah, I could, I could also see kind of like a um, a little bit of a, um, 
uh, just kind of like an apathetic, like, it's not going to do anything if I say anything anyway. So why bother? Like, why drudge this up for myself? You know? Yeah. Why put myself in this position? Mm -hmm. And I mean, remember that both of them were just teenagers. Yeah. Both of them were drinking. Lockett was struggling with depression. Mm -hmm. Other things. I don't know if they thought that the Palatine police would have believed them. Yeah, and like not to justify them holding the secrets because I'm certainly yeah. not trying to say that. I'm just like I think there are reasons that are reasonable reasons that you would hold back. Yeah, I know. mean, you can be angry, and I I would be angry too. I would be so pissed off in this situation. Yeah, I always try to put myself in the shoes of everybody involved in the case. Yeah, and there had to be something driving them to keep this secret, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. I don't know what that was. And I won't excuse it because, yes, it's angering. It pisses me off. And people mm-hmm. suffered and struggled for years after this. Yeah. yeah. But, and then people got yeah. very, very mad when Lockett uh, accepted the reward money. So, oh, but, really? But she shared it. And you know what? Take it. Lockett. Yeah. Take it. Yeah. So that's the Browns Chicken Massacre. Dang. That's really brutal. I just yeah. feel so much for those victims and those families. And then to have it get drawn out for so long. And then, like, just to see the sheer dumbassery of that confession flub. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like, that is just infuriating to think about. When I first read that transcript, I was like, what the fuck? Because it's like he either sounds like he's not all there uh-huh. Or like he's just being incredibly manipulative. But based on what he had said in the past to Ann Lockett, like, you know, he's just a manipulative dude that sucks. So <laughs> I can't just get yeah, that is really just kind of beyond the pale. Disgusting. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. What an awful, awful case. I'm glad you got some good mac and cheese out of it. I did. Everybody go support Brown's Chicken. Yeah. Yeah, I feel badly for them because they probably lost. I mean, they lost a lot of business. We know that. Like, I read the whole life story of Brown's Chicken. Mm. The owner was very, very much encouraged to change the name after the massacre. Yeah. But it was named after, like, him and another guy opened it. And it was named after the guy, his friend, Brown. Mm. And he was like, well, no, it's named after my friend. I won't change it. Yeah. Aw, that's kind of sweet. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to go through a Browns at some point. I've never I had never heard of it before, but I it just sucks when stuff goes that that drawn out, especially like it's drawn out not because it's necessarily unsolved, but because like the bureaucracy and the but that's every the case in Illinois. That's I know. what I yeah. There are great things about Illinois. Our criminal system is fucking awful. Yeah. I did look it up. They're both at Statesville, so okay, yeah. So they're they're not having a good time down there either. I'm I'm very sure. That's I'm not sure a fun not. place. I'm not sure a fun place. Not. They're never getting out. No, yeah, and and nor should they. They did a, a really abominable, horrible thing, and for nothing, and for no motive. Yeah, yeah. Like okay, you got three thousand dollars of it. Like okay, I'm sure that was gone in six months. You know. Yeah. Right. Easily. Uh. So. Yeah, just really gross, really gross. I want to, I will definitely take some time to think about those seven people. They all seem like good people. 
They really did. They really did. On that note. Mm. Yeah. There's no Sad. good transition out of this one. No, there's really not. It's just like, ugh. It just has yuck all over it. It's yeah. got yuck all over it. It's a very well-known case in Illinois, especially around where I am. But I don't know yeah. how many people outside of Illinois know it. Mm. So, Gotcha. Well, I will be taking us next week back to North Dakota. Yay, we haven't been to the Dakotas in a while. Not in a bit, yeah. So we will be heading out to North Dakota. We will be taking a look at a murder of a young college student. And the murder is technically unsolved. Uh-huh. But there are a lot of kind of tributaries of information that point in a few different directions that are... Very, very compelling. So we'll be looking at kind of a tangled web of possibilities for this case. Is this your first unsolved case? Yeah, I think so. It's not my usual vibe. Yeah. So sorry, murder husband. <laughs> He's going to get so mad at you. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it it's unsolved technically. I'll say that. But I think everything that I have read and researched makes it seem like everybody who knows this case thinks they know who did it. Yeah. So you're going to see some fingers pointed in a couple of different directions. And I think most people, by the end of hearing the story, are going to have a sense of who they think did it. Even if, you know... I mean, obviously that means nothing until it goes through a court of law, but... Yeah. You know. It's something. It gives us some sense of progress on a case. Yeah. Yeah. And it it, it is frustrating because it's technically unsolved, but it doesn't feel unsolved. The bright spot, I think, is that it feels very solvable. Okay. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So that's where we'll be next week. Come back and uh, hang out with us as we take our visit to North Dakota. Again, it's been a bit since we've been to the Dakotas, but I'm excited to get back. Yay. So am I. Yay. Very good. So, uh, yeah. Thanks, guys, for hanging with us. And we're always so glad that you're here. And um, we've been having a lot of fun times just interacting on the socials so you know please keep doing that with us again like welcome new listeners we've had kind of a continual steady little increase and that feels real good so thank you thank you i'm sorry i'll try to be less congested for you next time (laughs) we'll get her trying i can't make any promise oh my god i've taken benadryl every night for the last like three weeks that's a lie it's like only like the last week but But still it probably feels like three weeks because benadryl makes you feel like you're walking through jello yeah Ugh disgusting (laughs) thank you for that (laughs) have fun with that in the editing process (laughs) god this editing is gonna be a monster yeah this one's gonna suck so we should probably wrap up so it's not terrible for you all right you guys we want you to be nice and to eat cheese and to know that we We love love you you. all right guys bye we love you bye